You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Good morning. Uh, So if you've been here with us for the last couple of weeks, or if you've been with us online, whether in person over the last few weeks, then uh, you'll know that we are in the middle of a series that Aaron has titled Spiritual Volcanology. Spiritual Volcanology, Uncovering the Mystical in the Rocks of Religion. Uh, And this idea of spiritual volcanology that uh, Aaron has talked about and that we're we're talking about here comes from a quote um, from a Benedictine brother, a Benedictine monk uh, named David Steindl Rost, in which he uh, talks about that all religions start from mysticism. The quote is that there's no other way to start a religion, but I compare this to a volcano that gushes forth. There's this big bang experience. And then the lava flows. It flows down the sides of the mountain and it cools off. And when it reaches the bottom, it's just rocks. You'd never guess that there was fire in it. So after a couple of hundred years or a couple of thousand years or possibly more, what was once alive is now just dead rock. Doctrine becomes doctrinaire, morals become moralistic, ritual becomes ritualistic. And so what do we do with it? We have to push through the crust to get to the fire that's within it. So that's what we're talking about in this series is uh, the mystical depths that lay under the cooled off rocks of the religion that we're often in from day to day. And I think it's important also for me uh, to define what I talk about and what I think about as mysticism, because it's often something when people start to talk about mysticism or Christian mysticism or anything like that, uh, it loses me because there's so many different definitions, ideas that all get wrapped up into this idea of the mystic. Um, I'm often not a mystical person. In fact, I'm quite a skeptic. So when somebody starts to talk about like, mystical experiences and things like that, my brain tends to just click off. Um, But I've found in recent years that the way that I conceive of God is actually quite mystical uh, in its history. It actually has a lot in common with the Christian mystics. Um, There's this definition that I like that is that mysticism is the nagging suspicion that the apparent brokenness and discord and disunity that surround us every day actually conceal a hidden unity. It doesn't look like it's one, but I get a glimmer. I have an experience maybe outside of myself or my ego. I I have this moment and I get this suspicion that it's all actually one and united. I like to think of that as the mystical experience. So last week, uh, Aaron talked about a story from scripture and looking through, looking at that through a mystical lens. Today, we're going to, I want to pivot a little bit, and I want to introduce you to one of the great mystics in the history of the church. Um, I'll preface by saying, I hope you've had your coffee this morning, because when you start to talk about the mystics and what they said and things get really weird and heady, um, but we're going to try to get through it. Um, 
So this is a person who's so wise that he was, uh, he's often been called the man from whom God hid nothing. Uh, his name is Meister Eckhart. He lived in the 1300s. He was a, a Catholic Benedictine uh, friar. Um, some of you might be familiar with Eckhart. You maybe have heard his name. If you've participated in Pete Rollins's Atheism for Lent that we often do, you may have read some uh, readings of Eckhart because he tend, Pete tends to uh, involve Eckhart in some of his philosophical works. Um, it could be completely new to you, though. Either way, what I want to do here is give a brief introduction to who he was, and then we're going to talk about two of his big ideas. And these two ideas that we're going to talk about... Um, are kind of the foundation for a lot of things that we often talk about here at Central. Um, so I kind of want to introduce you a little bit to where they were born. So Eckhart was born in uh, Germany in 1260, and he lived in the 13th, 14th century. Um, notably, Eckhart was not a monk. He was a friar. So what that means, if you're not familiar with the, the Catholic order of things, is that he took all the typical vows that a monk would, chastity and poverty and caring for the poor and things like that. But he uh, wasn't what was called cloistered. He wasn't, he didn't live in a, in a monastery. He wasn't isolated off from the world. And a lot of the mystics throughout history, that's been their experience. Um, from early mystics up until even like Thomas Merton, who lived in the, this last century, um, they lived their lives isolated and that's where they experienced God and had their mystical experiences. Meister Eckhart was a teacher. He was a uh, he worked a lot with the poor. He was a uh, he did a lot of preaching in a church, and he found his mystical experiences often through walking with people, often with working with people. He found this way to experience the mystic in the everyday world, and I think that's important for the work that we do here, especially in a city like Los Angeles, that thinking about mysticism is not something that is a go away up on top of the mountain and then come down when you figured it out, but it's something we go through every day in our experiences with people. So Eckhart taught theology at the university in Paris, and he did a lot of theological works there, but really it's outside of his teaching in his preaching life that we get his really important mystical ideas. He would give his sermons to the Benedictine nuns. And uh, it's interesting because he didn't write down his sermons, not in any way that they would be preserved for the future. But the nuns were so moved by the depth and the beauty that Meister Eckhart was talking about that they would all individually take careful notes of everything he was saying. And then after he was done preaching, they would get together and they would compare their notes and they would come up with a consensus of word for word as close as they could get to everything that he had said. And then they would write that down. So it's through these women in the church that we have this preservation of these mystical ideas uh, that have been able to preserve today. Otherwise they would have been really lost to history. Now Eckhart's language is beautiful it's very metaphoric. It is very creative. It's full of really incredible emotional imagery. Uh, he talked a lot about God and the soul and their union together in oneness. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take two of his concepts and we're going to define them sort of intellectually. And then afterwards, I'm going to give you an opportunity to experience them more on the mystic side. And we're going to have a little bit of reflection and meditation while we listen to some of this beautiful language that, uh, that Eckhart gave us. So the first thing to talk about is what we call a negative theology. 
Has anybody ever heard that term negative theology? Comes up every once in a while. It's the concept that uh, God is better defined by what God isn't than what God is. It's kind of a heady concept, but Eckhart's theology is very much a negative one. Um, it's this idea that nothing can be said or grasped about God, because as soon as you define what God is, then God transcends any definition that you would give God. God's utterly beyond description or intellectual understanding or anything like that. And Meister Eckhart, for somebody who lived 800 years ago, took this to, or 700 years ago, took this very much to the extreme. Eckhart sees God as nothing. That is, that's not to say that God doesn't exist, but the, the idea that God is not a thing. God is literally no thing. And if you follow this logic through, since God is nothing, it's not a be God is not a being that exists with us. It's not a, a man up high on the clouds or anything like that. Then God is then identified as the absolute uh, absence of thingness. This is a, a big concept, but he views God as this uncomprehensible emptiness or nothingness that can't be grasped, can't be understood, can't be fathomed. And even though he does, he has a lot to say about the qualities of God and what God is like, which is interesting to me. Um, in fact, he talks a lot about the concept of existence and being and goodness and truth and unity, because for him, while God isn't a thing, God is sort of the essence of all of these concepts. So God might not be a being, but God is pure being God's self. God is the basis for all of being, but we'll talk about that in a second. God is pure goodness itself. God is pure oneness itself. So these are kind of paradoxes, and Eckhart uses these weird complex paradoxes to kind of twist your mind into knots when you're trying to read his stuff and figure it out. Um, and he'll say things like, well, God is goodness itself. So any goodness that you or I have is in fact God's goodness, and thus is identical to God itself. Or God is being itself, and therefore, or existence itself. So any existence that you or I have is identical to the existence of God, is the existence of God. Um, Eckhart's not trying to necessarily describe God, but what he does with a lot of his language is he's framing paradoxes that highlight the limitations of our ability to understand who God is. He's showing us the boundaries of this unknown realm in which God exists so that we can try to maybe understand a little bit further what it's like to, on the other side. And the second idea that he talks about is this idea of the ground. You'll hear people here talk about sort of the ground of being or the ground of unknowing. And this stems from Meister Eckhart. So Eckhart uses this German word Grund, um, which has a lot more in its meaning than just the ground, like we would talk about in, in English. Grund is physical ground. It's also like the underside of something, the bottom of a thing, a surface. It's also a very abstract concept that means like the origin of something, the cause, the beginning, the reason for something or the proof of something to exist. 
And then it also talks about the innermost like side of a thing, the hidden, or maybe the like the soul of a thing, the essence of a certain thing. So it gives a lot of opportunity in one word to play with a lot of different concepts in very beautiful language. Because you can talk about the ground of something being the ground and the ground of something being the soul at the exact same time. So Eckhart talks about the ground of the soul, the sort of source or essence or uh, beginning or reason for the soul being the same as the source or essence or reason or being of God. They're the same ground. In a lot of his sermons, he doesn't even give the distinct. Sometimes he'll say the ground of God and the ground of the soul, but often he just talks about the ground. And what he means is this interconnected oneness between ourselves and our soul and our essence and God's self and God's soul and God's essence. And this idea that he has is to sort of break through our sense of self into this understanding of the oneness of God and ourselves together. The ground is this metaphor that describes the essence at the center of reality and the divine. It's the thing from which all reality and all existence emanates. And it's also the thing from which everything is going to return ultimately in the future. So he'll say things like God's ground and the soul's ground are one ground. And here God's ground is my ground and my ground is God's ground. They're all interconnected together. And Eckhart insisted that this was actually a fundamental understanding of the Christian worldview, of the Christian belief system. Everything flows from the divine ground and everything flows back into the divine ground and it's in this interconnected flowing, and that is where God sort of exists, or that's where God comes to be, or sort of is birthed in that process. Um, so it, it, similar ways that we'll talk about somebody like maybe John Caputo, who talks about love being the basis or sort of the event in which God exists. Um, this is sort of a, a similar understanding. And he'll say things like, uh, the eye through which I see God the eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me. My eye and God's eye are one eye, one seeing, one knowing, one love. I mean, that's pretty sort of new agey spiritual for somebody who, who talked 700 years ago. Alan Watts in just the last 50 years said, you are the universe viewing and experiencing itself in sort of a Buddhist way. It sort of uh, emanates from a similar sort of imagery. So Eckhart will, Meister Eckhart is giving us this foundation for which we can try to understand sort of the edges of the outline of where God exists. That God is the ground and the being and the soul and the basis of all of our existence. And yet at the same time, cannot be itself because God is pure existence and pure goodness and pure love in its concept. It's a very big sort of heady concept, but it's a, the basis for a lot of the foundation for which uh, a lot of the theology that we talk about here, modern sort of radical theology, uh, theologies that are based on a lot of like psychoanalysis uh, um, and things like that, that we'll often bring into our talks uh, here at Central. It kind of comes in some sense, out of this work of Meister Eckhart. 
Except that there's one more thing I want to call out here that I think is really important, especially for the way that we do church here at Central. Uh, Eckhart had a lot of influences in his life. On the theology and the, the teaching side, he was very influenced by, Tom, by Thomas Aquinas, very influenced by some Jewish scholars and things like that. But really, when it came to his mysticism, there's really only one place that we can look and say that Meister Eckhart was influenced by somebody else's views, and that is in the women of the Begian movement who were doing mystic work around the same time that he was preaching. There's writings of some of these women, some, such as Mathilde of Magdeburg, where we find oneness with God, these sort of expressions of oneness with God, and especially in the French mystic named Marguerite Perret, who was burned at the stake as a heretic for her views and her writings in 1310. This was the same time that Eckhart was in Paris teaching, and it seems as though he would have encountered this book uh, the book's called The Mirror of Simple Souls, that it's really, our understanding is that he would have encountered this book that ultimately got Marguerite burned at the stake, and he's influenced by it and bringing it into his theology and his mysticism and his understanding of the divine. So it's really uh, our understanding that he was influenced by these Begian women at the time. And I want to point this out because in our church history, we so often have downplayed the importance and the contributions of women throughout history, giving us these beautiful, complex uh, theological concepts that I think that when we have these, it's really important as much as we can to name and to bring in the women who are the foundation for which not only our modern concept of mysticism or concepts of God that we talk about every week here come from, but are also the people who preserved these writings and brought them forward so that we could be influenced by them today. So yeah, ultimately, towards the end of his life, Eckhart was also tried as a heretic by the church. Um, and 20, it, he's not a, considered a heretic, but 28 of his writings were brought and, and deemed to be either some sort of heretical or problematic. And because of that, he kind of got lost in history. He sort of went from being a very, very influential figure to being somebody that nobody was really talking about. But he had these students that had taught that he had taught that went on to sort of influence things. And in the 1800s, some uh, philosophers, especially Schopenhauer, discovered his works and really kind of brought them into, or in the 1700s, brought them into light and sort of popularized them. Uh, and in more recent years, people like Carl Jung is very, very influenced by the philosophies and the mysticism of, of um, Meister Eckhart. And in Jung's writings, we'll often quote Eckhart and this concept of the ground of being and, and things like that as similar to what he's talking about with the sort of connected unconsciousness and that kind of work as well. So somebody who lived so long ago with these incredibly metaphoric and mystical concepts who really is such a, a heavy influence on us today that we often don't uh, really hear about or bring into everyday life. Uh, Schopenhauer has this great quote where he says that Buddha, Eckhart, and I, we all teach the same thing. Sort of feels interconnected, feels that oneness in itself. Um, so yeah, that is a, a brief introduction from a intellectual side to some of uh, Meister Eckhart's concepts. What 
I want to invite you now is to take a moment of reflection. We're going to uh, listen to a meditation. This is from a, a Buddhist teacher um, who is reading some of uh, Meister Eckhart's translated works um, along with some music. And his work, when you encounter it and when you listen to it, is so poetic that I really wanted to give you an, a, a, an opportunity to sort of let it sort of come in and uh, think about it, meditate on it. There will be, as she's reading the works, if you would like, there will be subtitles up on the video, but I'd also invite you, if you want, to just close your eyes, sit still, and listen to this. It'll be about five minutes, and then we'll come back and we'll have a little bit of a discussion. Go ahead. God's nature is unspeakable. The hidden darkness of the eternal light, of the eternal Godhead, is unknown and shall never be known. He is pure nothing. He is neither this nor that. If you think of anything he might be, he is not that. The Godhead is not a being. Does not have being. Does not exist as such. but is rather pure being itself. Existence is God. The isness of all that exists is God.
the Godhead at its ground is utterly one, simple and undifferentiated. impersonal this very divine ground is also the innermost of the human soul the image and likeness of God God's ground is my ground and my ground is God's ground. God's ground and the soul's ground is one ground. The ground is by nature receptive to nothing save only the divine essence without mediation. Why do we pray? Okay, I'll invite you to come back to us. I found for myself that, um, now I, I was raised Catholic. I, I grew up in a Catholic church, in sort of a parish church. Um, I've shared this before, but in, when I was a teenager, I really lost any concept of faith. Um, and then in, when I was in college, I sort of started to come back to a different concept of faith through uh, a much more open idea of God and of my faith and things like that. And for the last 15 years, I've been trying to reconcile sort of what is this idea of God that I, I, I see. Uh, and that's a lot of my journaling and writing and thinking. And when, um, when I encountered Eckhart, what I realized was, oh, this is a lot of sort of how I view the divine. When I sit, if I sit and think about who, what is God? Okay, so if God's not an old man with a beard up in the clouds, then what is the divine? What is God? Sort of this ground of being, this essence, this thing from which everything emanates and is pure goodness and pure existence, from which when I have experiences with somebody or I have experiences with nature, I get these glimpses. I get these ideas. This like it's like cracks in the the outline of something where you can kind of see the light or the oneness shining through, um, and that's where I find uh, the mystical. Um, yeah. So 
Uh, I want to open this up for discussion. As you know, every week at, here at Central, uh, we always have a period of discussion where you can ask questions, you can give comments, you can share stories, you can tell me that I am completely full of it and none of this resonates with you at all. Um, I We're open to kind of whatever that is. And uh, um, I'd be interested in sort of how this strikes you or how this idea, how these ideas sort of uh, strike you as a concept of God or just, you know, any, again, thoughts, questions, comments, anything like that. Yeah, Marcia. Yes, so for Eckhart, he talks about Jesus as the connection point, uh, or as a uh, Jesus coming into the world as a connection point for the soul to God is sort of a, a modeling of the soul and God's oneness being together. And uh, I think he looks partly at uh, Jesus's, again, works in the world, right? And But also connection with God in the kingdom of God being here and near and now and there and sort of all around us, this overlapping realm of heaven and earth and sort of an idea of what that sort of all looks like together. So he kind of views Jesus as part of that mystical experience. Yes, yeah, and as the, the son being born into the world, giving us a experience of connection point through which we can experience the, the Godhead, yeah. Good question. Yeah. I'm going to pass the mic around so everybody can hear you online. Uh, well, in my job, I'm like a software support agent. Okay. And this weirdly resonates with me because in my job, it's very, very hard to prove anything. It's way easier to prove what isn't there. Mm -hmm it's way easier to disprove something. It's almost impossible to prove anything. Um, and so, man, you started saying mysticism and I was like, Oh, I don't know. But then like, as you were talking, I was like, this is probably one of the most pragmatic things I can think of. Mm -hmm. um, and it reminds me of uh, some theologian I was reading that was saying that uh, magic and science as we think of them as a modern audience were around the same time in human history and they're really just two different lenses of thinking of uh in the ancient world it was how do i align myself with the natural mm -hmm. and in the emerging modern world it was how do i control the natural to fit me mm -hmm. magic and science are two different ways of doing that yeah. so this makes sense to me in a sense that like it's almost scientific it's like saying i can't i can't prove what god is I can prove what God's not, though, through experience mm -hmm. and through other people's experience. Um, so that really, I, I feel like I'm just kind of stuck on that. It's like, as I'm reading the Bible, yeah, that's what Jesus is doing like all yep. the time. God, he's like, God is not that. Yep. They're like, well, what is God? Well, it's not that. Yep. You know? so. Yeah, you get a lot of those, especially from Jesus, you get a lot of those. You've been told this, but it's not that. You yeah. can, you've you've thought it's this, but it's not that. That's a yeah. lot of the Sermon on the Mount is that, right? And there's yeah. Just, you know, and people saying, well, "What did you mean by that?" And, well, you've missed the point. That's not that. It's this other thing completely. Um, that I'm not telling you what it is. I'm just telling you that it's this other thing completely. That's interesting. Yeah. Go ahead. Um. So did Eckhart 
like in his writings and philosophy, did he refer to God as he and him? Because that seems yes. to kind of contradict the God is nothing theory. Um, and in that video where she was reading his writings, that was mentioned like yeah. in a couple lines. And I don't know if that was to illustrate that once you say, oh, he is this, you've missed the point and you're wrong. Um, but I'm also just curious, like, is that how Eckhart referred to him? Yeah, it's a great or question. To, to God, yeah, see. yeah. Eckhart definitely used gendered language for God. I've pulled that out in the in what I was saying, but uh, definitely used gendered language. I'm not sure, I haven't read enough of Eckhart to know if he intrinsically thought of God as gendered or if that was just the way as a Catholic friar and a theologian that you referred to God because, you know, that's what in German you did 700 years ago. I, I'm not sure, but I certainly, uh, from what I do know, it seems that if Eckhart is uh, describing God as no thingness, then it would then follow that he would have to describe God as no maleness in its essence. Um, but that we're giving language and admitting that our language is incorrect at the same time. But I'm not going to put words in his mouth because I don't know that. And he might have just been a misogynist like a lot of other people. Hopefully not. <laughs> um, yes. I'm going to grab the microphone. Um, yeah, um, going off of what was said in the software application, it reminds me a bit of um, like evolution is just a theory mm. or like mm -hmm. scientifically speaking, it is actually only a theory, but that's because proving it beyond a theory is like impossible. almost impossible to yeah. do. Um, so yeah, I totally connected with that as well. I was also thinking um, of like Japanese and Buddhist like koans, like what is the sound made with one hand clapping, mm. like basically these riddles in Eastern um, yeah. spirituality um, that are like meant to kind of unspool the brain in a bit. And it reminded me of how Eckerd was presenting paradoxes to kind of like mess with your head and try to kind of see things in a new way. Yep. And also reminded me a bit of, um, I'm not an expert of this at all, but like some of the things, and I've kind of, like you said, like thought of this on my own kind of journaling and things, but um, how the writings of like the Tao Te Ching will talk about the Tao in ways that remind me of like this mysticism where it'll say like the Tao is the infinite common source eternally present within you no beginning no end the essence of wisdom just being yeah so it feels like I've always kind of felt that there was some sort of commonality there yeah. there's definitely a lot of overlap with what Eckhart was saying you know 700 years ago and buddhist philosophy and eastern philosophy in general there there is a writer uh dt suzuki who's a zen um scholar who has written books about the overlap between he has a, uh, a there's a book i have out in the car that is um christian mysticism and zen buddhism sort of and how they overlap and it's all meister eckhart and the the teachings of Buddha and sort of the Zen writings. And he talks a bit about the enigmatic sort of nature of a lot of those Zen stories are meant for you to just go, huh? Okay. Um, you know, or to really just sit and think with and live with the paradox, the, the non-duality is sort of everything lives sort of somewhere in this middle, but we're going to use this language to define the boundaries. So yeah, that's interesting. Anybody else? Other thoughts? Yeah, question. 
Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, it's possible. So what, what Marsha was saying was that that uh, possibly Eckhart was uh, obviously not being stupid, would not want to be burned at the stake, and so maybe use gendered language to sort of maintain that. Um, it's possible. There's a lot of what he said that is really sort of troubling for the, the early church, it seems. The only reason that it, it seems the only reason that he himself was not deemed an official heretic was that they were doing this long trial where he had to defend his uh, his writings, and it was late in his life, and he died before the judgment could be made. So he could not be deemed an official heretic of the church, and therefore they had to look at his teachings and writings and then deem some of them as mostly problematic, but some as heretical. But mostly his defense, which is interesting, was just essentially like, you don't get it. Like, that's a lot of what he was saying was like, no, 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 no. You're, you're thinking that what I'm saying is literal because a lot of the, a lot of the, the issue that they had was that when you look at a statement, like my eye and God's eye are one eye and the eye through which I view God is the eye through which God views me. People say, well, that's pantheism. You're saying that everything is God. And you're saying that you are God. And he was saying, no, it's a metaphor. Like, no, it's a story. No, it's something deeper than that. I'm trying to get to a different truth. And uh, he talked about like some of the stories or some of the sayings uh, in his defense of, of what Jesus wrote or Jesus said about um, like, I and the father are one and you and I are one. And therefore you, like you could justify this concept that like Jesus was saying that you and the father are one, but he's not, he's sort of using this metaphoric language to get to a deeper truth. Um, but yeah, it seems like, I mean, he's using concepts from people who were executed for heresy. So it seems like in some ways he just didn't care. I'm not totally sure on how all the Benedictine friarship works, but yeah, it's interesting. Good question. Yeah. You give you the, just for people listening to the podcast. Really here. That's fine. I like, um, now I'm just curious. The trial that he got to defend his works and himself as not a heretic um is that common for people who are accused of being a heretic or was he given some like special like we'll give you a chance that's a great question that i don't know the answer okay. to i do know that uh right so i know that intellectually he was really highly regarded Meister, by the way, isn't his first name. It means it's master because he was the head of the theology department at the, the university in Paris where before him was held by St. Augustine. So like it was like he was considered a very high intellectual. So it's possible they were like, hey, we're going to like ask you. We've got questions about things you've been saying and we need you to defend them. Uh, it's you, you also have other trials that's, that that throughout heresy trials where it has seemed like things were just railroaded, you know, th throughout history. So I'm not sure how common that process was, um, but certainly he was, he was widely regarded. So I, it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Leanne, what you were saying reminded me of uh, something. I, I think I saw like a YouTube video on it at some point, but they were talking about like how the old Testament idea of Proverbs is that like wisdom I think it's Proverbs. Uh, it's one of the wisdom books, but that wisdom is like not just this like human idea or like something we get. Wisdom is like a f almost like not a force. Honestly, it feels more like the force in Star Wars. It's like, uh, you know, the common thread of existence and being in alignment with like what existence is supposed to be doing. It's like mm -hmm. in a maybe like a Zen way, like being in the flow of the universe. 
um, and that wisdom is like that. And so it, I don't know what you were saying kind of connects there is like, yeah, like God and is unknowable and transcendent, but at the same time manifests through like the flow of creation. Like that's where you see it. Like maybe like, uh, like the shadow on the cave wall, I think in philosophy, yeah, yeah. that kind of thing. Like you, you don't see the thing, but you see the evidence of it. Yep. That's interesting. Yeah. I know for me, just to say, like I kind of mentioned this earlier, but all of the mysticism stuff comes so slowly to me. It's really easy for me to get my head around, like care for the poor or like don't murder people. Like it's really hard for me to get my head around, like be in the mystical flow of the universe. And I know people who that comes really easily and they're like, yeah, it's all one in this. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Uh, and I, it takes me a while to slow down my, to slow myself down to be like, Yes, I need to be in the flow of things. I need to see these things as the experience of God or as the the sort of evidence through which we kind of understand the divine. Yeah, that's, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Cool. Any last thoughts, questions? No. Yes. That's true. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you, everyone. Thanks for, for joining us this morning. And uh, let's do you have our benediction up. Is that why you're waving at me? I'm guessing. So let's share in our benediction together as we as we close here. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves as Christ did to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thank you, everyone.